Uh, we're in chapter 30 of the study of First Samuel. I uh, think, although there has a conspiracy to prevent this from happening, it was told, but I think we're going to finish the book today. Let me remind you, I, I'm never sure who all has been here or not, but let me remind you of the previous two chapters. Um, the last two chapters, David is doing ridiculous things. He's clearly not walking with the Lord. He is with the Philistines, and only God's providence prevents him from joining the Philistines in their invasion of Israel. To split Israel in half, you might remember from our last discussion. And he goes, heads back to Ziklag, which is where he is um, living under the supervision of the Philistines. And then chapter 29 is just a, a, a tragic chapter. It's where Saul, he hits spiritual bottom. I mean, you can go no farther than he has. He goes to a, a medium, uh, a person who practices the occult, a woman to uh, practice necromancy, to bring someone back from the dead. God, in his permissive will, allows Samuel to be brought back. And I stressed this last time, if you look at what Samuel is allowed by God to say to Saul, he uses the, the, the term Yahweh seven times. So this is good evidence that God is allowing this. And so the tragedy is that Samuel says, as he's the vehicle for God's oracle against Saul, now you will die tomorrow, meaning Saul, you will die tomorrow. And that's what chapter 31 is going to be about. But chapter, but chapter 30 is back to David. I, you know, I was meeting here in Omaha. They have a website right here in Omaha, the best mediums in Omaha. Sure, yeah. Two live very close to where I live. Now, there's one on South 70, on, well, it's actually North 72nd Street, right before 72nd and Cass. On the, if you're heading south, it's on the right. Every now and then she has signs out in the front yard, discounts. For, <laughs> what she wants to do. Uh, yes, yeah, oh my, they're quite pervasive. And there are now um, not only websites, but there are uh, podcasts and there are call-ins where you can call in, a lot of them in California, but you can call in and for, I don't even remember how much money, how, so much a minute, they will give you counsel as they consult. I mean, it's amazing. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 3,000 years ago and still going on. Uh, 3,000 years, I mean, with Saul, it's still going on today. So, But chapter 30 is God's, um, I don't know how else to put this, so I'm going to be very frank with it, is God's discipline of David. This is what is going to bring David back to the Lord. This is what is going to reignite David's walk with the Lord, and I will stress the evidence for that as we look at it. Okay, now David is in AFAC, which is up, near the, the central part of Israel, right at the Jezreel Valley. The Philistines are splitting Israel in half. So David heads three days south, about 50 miles south. The Ziklag is where he's living, as you might remember. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, third day from traveling, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag, burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. Now, just a reminder or two, you might remember the Amalekites. 
Saul in chapter 15 was directed to get rid of them. He did not completely do that. So they're still around. And so they are, they're, they're nomadic. I don't know how to describe them. Other than nomadic raiders, they, they, they sustain themselves by raiding <laughs> other, other uh, settlements. And so they're raiding in this Negev, which is Negev, the desert. And Ziklag is where David is. So bottom line is David has now witnessed his wives, his children, and all of the wives and children of his 600 men have been taken, <clears throat> kidnapped, if you will. Verse 2, and taken captive. And that word captive, in Hebrew, in verse 2, that word captive is a very important word. What it means is they intend, the Amalekites intend, to sell these women and children in the slave market. That, that's what that means. They're not just kidnapping them and you know going to keep them for ransom. That's not what it means. It means they're going to sell them in the slave market, which in almost all, at this, at least at this point in, in history of the ancient Near Eastern world, they would be sold in Egypt. They would be sold in Egypt. So, I mean, this is nefarious. It's horrible. So what does David do? Verse 3, And when David and his men came to the city, found it burned with fire, and the wives and sons and daughters taken captive. David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives have been taken captive. I know I'm of Jezreel, Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed with the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. Notice the next sentence. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So what God, you know, there's no other way to process this, no, way to, no other way to understand this. And that God has allowed this to happen. Malachites taking his children, wives, etc., and all the wives and kids of his, of his of 600 men to get David's attention. And so it has achieved that goal. And those words are marvelous words. They're used numerous times throughout the Old Testament, strengthened himself. But it doesn't normally mean, you know, strengthen yourself physically. It's strengthened himself spiritually in uh, the Lord his God. And those words, Yahweh his Elohim, that's, I know those Hebrew words don't mean anything, but it's, it's that, that personal nature, personal quality of his relationship with God. So, point, David is back walking with God. How did he do that? How did he strengthen himself? Prayer. Well, yeah, I mean, prayer, uh, meditation, perhaps on the law. The, the specifics aren't itemized here, but you, you think of perhaps, I, I don't, know how else to maybe illustrate this and think of your own life. If you're in a very difficult time or very down time, what do you do? You pray, you read God's word, you perhaps talk to other believers, and you, you just find yourself over that block of time that you're doing it spiritually strengthened, spiritually enabled and encouraged. And that's what's happening here with David. And you, you see evidence of is being strengthened in the Lord. When you read the Psalms, there you see, and you know, David wrote, there are 150 Psalms, David wrote about 73 of them. There's a little discussion on that, but around 70, 73 of them. And there you see how David strengthened himself. He would remind himself of who God is, remind himself of God's faithfulness, remind himself of, of, of all God has done for him. And so that's, does, this, so does that answer your question? I mean, it's, yes. it's that kind of, 
spiritually enabling and nurturing that gets you out of the spiritual pit, <laughs> so to speak. Verse 7, and David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech. Now, just remember who he is. Saul had exterminated all the priests at Nob. When he had wiped out the priesthood at Nob, one escaped, and that one escaped is Abiathar. And he's now loyal to David. He will be with David throughout David's life. So Abiathar said, bring me the ephod. This is David. And so David, or Sabiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. So he strengthened himself in the Lord. And this is this is a little sounds a little mysterious and weird, but the ephod was just that that cape that the priest wore, and in that cape was the Urim and Thummim. It was a way in which they would ask the Lord's direction. And if if it if the white stone is chosen, go ahead with it. If the black stone is chosen, you don't go ahead with it. It's just a way of discerning God's will. And that's what David is doing. And he inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this man? Shall I overtake them? He, God, answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So you see two things now that are pieces of evidence that God's disciplinary action using the Amalekites, has has brought David back. He's strengthening himself in the Lord. He's not going to act unless he's certain this is what the Lord wants him to do. And so this is just, it's a, it's a marvelous example of, of the discipline of God bringing one of his saints back to fellowship. And, and that's what you see here. So David set out in verse 9, and 600 men, remember that's, the, the group that's loyal to him, who were with him. And they came to the Brook Besor. That's about, uh, what would that be? 10 miles, 11 miles uh, southwest of where David's home is, Ziklag. So he's headed in a southwesterly direction. And that's, that's where this brook is, where those <clears throat> who were left stayed behind. David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 men stayed behind, who were exhausted to cross the brook. Now, that's a fact. It's a piece of information that's going to be important for something that happens at the end of this chapter. The 600 and 400 men go with him to pursue the Amalekites. 200 stay behind. It says they're exhausted. The other men again. He found an Egyptian in the open country. Verse 11 brought him to David. He gave him bread and he ate. He gave him water to drink. He gave him a piece of cake, figs, and two clusters of raisins. When he'd eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said, to whom do you belong? Where are you from? I'm a young man of Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And that word servant means he's a slave. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days. So who is this guy? He is a slave to the Amalekites who had raided David's home, uh, David's uh, town in Ziklag. We had raid a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites. Uh, yeah, I, I apologize. These names always get a little bit. If you're really honest, that is another name for the Philistines. Because the Philistines are a group that sea people in the early 1200s migrated in this area. They came from Crete. It's connected with that. Well, that's all it means. The people from Crete, the Philistines. And against that which belonged to Judah, against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me in the hands of my master. Then I will take you down to this man. 
So, I mean, in, in that sense, God's provided, provided a way in which they can find out one what's happened, where are they, and this, this man who is a slave from Egypt will take them there. And when he had taken him down, he would be the slave, him would be David. Behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating, drinking, and dancing, because all of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines, from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day. So that's basically a whole day, from twilight of one day till the evening of the next day. Not a man escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks, and herds and people drove the livestock before him, saying, this is David's spoil. So, not only, obviously you see that, but just to summarize, not only did David retrieve his family and the 600 men, theirs, but they got the spoil of the Amalekites. They're enriched, <laughs> materially speaking. And I mean, again, David's walking with the Lord. The Lord had directed him to do this, and the Lord honors that. Now, I want to complete this chapter, and then when we're done, because this, this, this chapter ends David, and what the next chapter is is about the death of Saul. But I want to summarize what we have been seeing over these last uh, old 11 or 12 chapters where David's been running. What are the leadership qualities that God's been developing in David? I want to summarize those in a minute. But let's finish the chapter. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David. Remember that? They had been left at the Brek Bezor. <clears throat> they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. And all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and his children and depart. Now, do you understand the situation? Please note how the author refers to these 400 who are saying what they say to the 200. What does he call them? These wicked and worthless fellows. So what, what do we have here? We have among David's 600 men, these are the most loyal men to him. They will be the core of his army when he becomes the king. Anyway, this is an issue that's going to divide them. This is a very divisive issue. So it's, okay, the 400 who helped David defeat the Amalekites and now have all the spoil, they don't want to share any of the spoil of these 200. What is the leader going to do? Is the leader going to allow this to divide his men? Is he going to make this a divisive, very difficult issue? Or how's he going to settle it? But David said, verse 23, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. Another little piece of evidence. David is back walking with the Lord. He had asked the Lord, shall we pursue the Amalekites? God said, yes. God's given them the victory, given them this extra spoil. To whom does he give credit? The Lord. He has preserved us. 
He has given into our hand that band that came against us, who would listen to you in this matter. For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so his share, so his share be who stays with the baggage. They shall all share alike. The whole nation, I'm stretching it, but this will be a principle because the next sentence says, and he made a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. All in the nation will benefit when God blesses. All in the nation, in this case, it's just 600 men, but all will benefit when God blesses. Verse 25, David makes it a statute. So this, this becomes now a statute, a, you know, a, a right. There's a various ways you can translate that Hebrew word, but he, this will now be a practice in Israel. Everyone will share when God blesses. Is that a quality of leadership? You bet it is. He's preventing something that could have really seriously divided his men. And he made a lesson. God has blessed us, and everyone shares in God's blessing. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah. Now think about that for a minute. You know, the, 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 the spoil from the Amalekite was, was lucrative, apparently, from the language that's used here. David shares it with the men and so on, but he also shares it with the elders of Judah. And what that would mean are the, the clan. Remember, every tribe is made up of lots of clans. So it would be the clan leaders. Why share it with Judah? That's he's been living. I mean, Ziklag is right on the edge of Judah, and he's been raiding all of the different tribes to protect Judah. Judah is his tribe. Remember, he is from the tribe of Judah. Judah, the base of David's support is Judah. One, because he, he, that's his tribe. Number two, that's he has been raiding all the different nomadic raiding groups to protect Judah. He has been, he's been, he's been built, I hate to use politics, but political phrase, I mean, but he's building his political base. I mean, he, that's really what he's doing. I don't know how else to say it. But it's also because this is his tribe. And as we, we saw at the end of verse 25, all will benefit when God blesses. So that's what he's doing. Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, David says to the clan leaders of Judah. It was for those in Bethel, and it lists all these towns. I'm not going to read them all. But I want you to notice verse 31. And in Hebron. That's really important because Hebron is going to become the capital. After Saul is killed, Hebron's going to become the capital. And David will rule Israel from Hebron for seven years before he conquers Jerusalem and then makes that the capital for an additional 33 years. But we'll get to that in, chapter, in this, our study of 2 Samuel. So this, these are very strategic decisions that David is making here. These are very practical decisions in terms of building his support base, but he's also establishing principles 
that will be a part of how he's going to rule. When God blesses, everyone will share in the blessing. And so, I mean, these are kind of profound decisions that David is making that have enormous implications for the nature of his rule. What kind of king is he going to be like? So this is, um, this is really a marvelous chapter, uh, chapter 30. For a, a number of reasons. One, we see the Lord disciplining David. It, it, it brings David back into fellowship with the Lord. He is inquiring and fellowshipping and seeking God's direction once again. And he uses that immensely important strategy, depend on the Lord and God will answer and bless. And then sharing that with his people and then ultimately as a pr- principle for the nation. And very strategic decision. He shares with Judah, his base of support. And we're introduced to the importance of Hebron. Now, Hebron has been a, it's an important city. That was important to Abraham. That's where Abraham is buried in Hebron. He bought that land from, from uh, one of, one of the, the Hittites there in Hebron way back uh, a thousand years earlier. So, I mean, it's just, this is the first time it appears, but it's the first time it's associated now with David. And as you're going to see when we get into 2 Samuel, that will be the capital of his, his kingdom for seven years. Okay, so his leadership spiritually, uh, with the Lord, allows his nation, and he transfers those values and decisions to his people, the blessings flow to the people as well, and they can see how it's a witness, isn't it? Well, I I think so. I mean, I like to put it in, in the way we've talked about it before in our class. David is the model, Deuteronomy. Uh, 17 king. Remember, we, we, remember we, we looked at that. Here's when God, they're in on the other side of the Jordan River, they're about to cross in. Moses writes Deuteronomy, the second iteration of the law. When you go into the land and you ask for a king, here's what I want you to do. And he lays out, out the characteristics and qualities of a king. A Deuteronomy 17 king is a king that walks with God who does not depend on wealth, does not take foreign wives, does not go down to Egypt, get chariots, but depends on the Lord. And continuing, every day he reads and meditates upon the law of God. And he's seeking God's direction and blessing. David models that. And uh, so it's, it's, it's marvelous to see now all that David has learned. So what I'd like to do, I have a few of these that I'm going to suggest to you. What are the qualities of leadership that we see? And I'm going to use largely this chapter, but you've seen it throughout these times with David. It's, David's been like this. It's been hard, but he's, he's, his character is growing. His faith is deepening. Now, these are qualities of leadership I think are important, but I think they're validated in other parts of Scripture, and they fit with, again, what I said uh, in response to Fred's question, that Deuteronomy 17 type of king. First of all, from verse 4 of this chapter, we see a leader who has empathy. That's important. If a leader is going to lead, he he or she has to have a degree of empathy with the people whom he's leading. David had that. Second, this, of course, is obvious, but David was a man of faith. Just again, in this chapter, in this chapter alone, I see it in verse 6, 
I see it in verse 8, I see it in verse 23, and I see it in verse 26. David is a man of faith, and as a man of faith, as a leader of faith, that becomes contagious because people see their leader as a person of faith, trusting the Lord and so on, that will, that will enable them to follow their leader in that sense. Thirdly, and this, of course, is a major quality of leadership, but David is decisive. I see that, especially in verse 10 of this chapter, as he's dealing with the Amalekites and all that stuff, but also how he leads. He doesn't quibble. He's not impulsive. He's decisive. This relates somewhat with being empathetic, but number four is David evidences kindness. He's, he's not a harsh, dictatorial, narcissistic king. It's all about me. No, he's kind to those he's leading. But at the same time, as you see, particularly there in verse 17, as he is pursuing the Amalekites, is persistence. He will keep doing what he's supposed to do till he gets the job done. In this case, it's, it's, it's dealing with the Amalekites. And from, from twilight to the evening of the next day, he persists in dealing and, and destroys the Amalekites. Now, of course, this, this quality is absolutely central to leadership, integrity. Integrity. Verse 23. David does not take glory in this victory upon himself. He says, the Lord did this. David easily could have said, you can see Saul doing this, can't you? He would easily have said, stood up in his man, put his thumbers in his, in his suspenders, and says, look at how great I am in leading us against this guy. Everything's been rescued. Don't you want to praise me? That's not what he does. Who did you give credit? The Lord. David is a man of integrity. Leaders without integrity ultimately are going to fail and they're going to bring the people that are following them down. That is a principle you see throughout the Bible. That is a principle you see throughout history. Number two, uh, uh, I forget what number I'm at. The next uh, is fairness or equity. But fairness, you see that in verse 24. That remarkable, this was such a potentially divisive issue. But fairness. As God blesses, we all will share in the blessing. You 200 who stay behind and guarded our baggage, you will share equally with the 400 who join me in battle. And then finally, uh, generosity. And you see that in, you know, well, throughout the section, but particularly how he deals with Judah, very generous in sharing with the clan leaders of Judah. Um, when you see these, when you see these qualities in David, then you contrast him with Saul. What what a what a distinct difference! They're like at opposite ends of the spectrum of leadership, and you can see why David will be the greatest king of Israel. These are these as we'll get into Second Samuel. These are the glory days of Israel. It's about three thousand years ago. It's about a thousand BC. But he's the glory. This is he's going to make Israel into a major Eastern Mediterranean power, and then his son Solomon, of course, will continue that. But God has been developing all of this, as we have been talking throughout our study of this book, 
from really chapter 17 with Goliath and all that on to where we are now. That's all that God has been doing. David has a Deuteronomy 17 king who has the qualities of kingship. He's ready to be king. And then chapter 31 is how God facilitates that. That, of course, will be the death of Saul. Now, um, I, I really, I've been developing this throughout our study of First Samuel, but I wanted to close out, before we look at the death of Saul tragically, but close out with a review again of these quite important leadership qualities that David is evidencing. He's ready, but it's taken God between 10 and 11 years to do all this. But he's ready. And with these uh, characteristics <clears throat> in 2024, we have today, we have And um, <clears throat> those characteristics, do you think, uh, sway the people that they were sincere? No, people are not swayed by this. They, they could care less about this. Even if they saw it. I, I don't, well, I, I don't really see well, anybody saying, evidencing yeah, this. But people, people, and you can chart, you can chart this through not all, but through some of our history. Um, what motivates people to vote the way they vote, vote has very little to do with these qualities. Because they're not, people are people and unless you are very serious in your walk with God you are motivated by selfish self-centered reasons why do I do what I do for selfish self-centered reasons I'm not talking about a believer I'm talking about normal people you know that the vast majority of people in the United States are not believers. First time in our history, um, we have Protestantism is now a minor; it is a minority religion in America. You know that the twenty-five percent of the people identify themselves when they have all the religious options, options as none. N O N E of the, the above. It's a spiritual crisis in our country, and so people will not. People are not looking for these qualities when they vote for president. If you can convince me they are, you're gonna to have to do an awful lot of work because I do not see that. We as a as a, an aphorism of, of another generation, we are getting the leaders we deserve. So if we did have someone with the characteristics characteristics of David that was right, I don't care so much about politics. Would people be, you're saying people would not be drawn? Not necessarily, I'm afraid to say. You know, when you look at the history of our country, and I don't want to go down this money trail too much longer, but when you go down uh, the, the, the roster of our history, you, you would look at, I'm just thinking just of presidents, but I could also talk about a lot of other leaders, but I would look at someone with qualities. I would say George Washington had these kind of qualities. You know, if you've ever read, uh, there's a number of really good biographies uh, uh, out there um, of, of, uh, of, of Washington, but every biographer uh, will bring this up. When Washington, remember, the original Constitution did not have any term limits for president. 
he could have gone on. And European monarchs were stunned when George Washington made the decision, I'm not going to run for a third term. He surrendered his power. And, you know, the European monarchs were, here's a man who had, had immense power. And, you know, in one sense he did. And when he surrendered it, and went back to his farm in Mount, in, in Mount Vernon. Uh, another illustration of someone that had those same, these same kind of qualities uh, is Abraham Lincoln. But, you know, Abraham Lincoln ruled at the, the worst time in our history when our nation was fatally divided, civil war and all that stuff. But one looks back on this because half of the country, 11 states, ultimately refused to follow his leadership, left the Union, <laughs> formed another country. It took a civil war to bring them back. Um, you no, know, there are other individuals. This guy is not as well known, but James Garfield, a devout man of God, incredibly, incredibly, man of incredible integrity. He was assassinated. You know, he was the second president of our country to be assassinated. He, he was that kind of a man, and his term didn't last very long because of the assassination. They're an incredible man of integrity uprightness, and, and, and he wanted that for his country, but he was struck down. Uh, so, I mean, just because you have a man like this doesn't mean that everybody's going to follow. But I want a person like this. And I think that's the kind of person that God will honor. But uh, tragically, you know, uh, you, you, you ask people in the United States, I mean, if you would conduct a poll, do these things matter to you as his qualities for your leader. No, I want to make sure he gets inflation down. I want to make sure that he deals with border issues. All right, you know, that, that's the thing. I want to make sure that, you know, it depends on where you are in the political spectrum, whatever your hot button is. Those are not that they're not important issues. But how does a leader lead? That's a very important question. This is how David led. Chapter 31 is one of the tragic books of the Bible, tragic chapters of the Bible, because it's the death of Saul. And I want to, you know, this isn't very, it's not long, it's not real difficult, because obviously it leads to him committing suicide. But I want to talk a little bit about that ethically as well. But um, let's read this, and, and it's the end of Saul. It's a, a terribly tragic story. And you can remember back, with when he was at the Witch of Endor, what we had read last week, Samuel had been used by God to deliver an oracle of judgment. This is that oracle fulfilled. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now if you stand at the Jezreel Valley, is up north right where Galilee is, a little bit Galilee's, in that northern part. And you stand here, you can see Mount Gilboa, Hills of Moray, and Mount Tabor. All of those are important in the Old Testament. Mount Gilboa is right on the edge of the mountains of Samaria. And so it's as that the, that beautiful valley goes into the mountains, that's that's the first major mountain. The battle had been fought here in the, the, the flat area of Jezreel, the valley. Israel is the armies of Israel are losing the battle. So where do they flee? They go up the mountain. Do you understand? I'm just giving you the geography of this. 
you know, without getting maps out and everything. They flee up the mountain. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Aminadab, Malchishua, the sons of Saul. Now, you have not been introduced to those others, but Jonathan, you know, he was the very close friend of David. So the Philistines chased the Israelites up the mountain and killed the sons of Saul. Verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and badly he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. And, I mean, that's an obvious request because that's exactly what the Philistines would do. That was a typical methodology to dismember the body. It's quite horrible. And so what he's asking is his armor bearer, you know, an armor bearer, you know what that means. Kill me. <laughs> well, the armor bearer, in, in the middle of, of, of verse 4, the armor bearer would not do it, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So, because his armor bearer would not kill him, Saul commits suicide. One of the few suicides in the Bible, I want to talk a little bit about suicide in, in just a minute as an ethical issue, short bunny trail. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men, on the same day, all together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. So that last verse, which I just read, verse 7, is a verse summarizing the immense victory of the Philistines. They have succeeded. They split Israel in half. They've conquered the entire Jezreel Valley. They've overtaken all the major settlements and cities in the Jezreel Valley. It now belongs to the Philistines. And this day, it's going to take a little while until David becomes king and all that. David's going to deal with that later. But this is a massive, massive loss to the, to the Israelis. Uh, the, the, the horror of what has happened. And if you want a year, this is 1011 B.C. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of the low marks of history for Israel. But you can see from the language of verse 7 that all of Israel, and this, this doesn't mean all the way down to negative, but this is a, everybody, up in, all the tribes that are up in the north, they've been defeated. And they're now going to live under the rule of the Philistines. Not down south yet. We'll talk about that later. All right, what happens? The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, now uh, that, that means to get their armor, get their weapons, as well as any valuables they might have, they found Saul and his three sons on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and their people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. Now, that, that would be one of their temples 
down in the area of Gaza where their main cities are, the temple to Dagon and, and his consort. And they fastened his body to the wall of Beit Shan. Now, Beit Shan is a city at the very end of the Jezreel Valley. Here, if you're interested, I'll give you, here's the Jordan River. Right here's Beit Shan. The Jezreel Valley goes all the way up to Mount Carmel. This is Beit Shan. It's right here. And so what they did, this is a walled city, they nailed his body to that wall. That was, a, that was a, and remember, the, the head has been removed, uh, but they nailed his body to the wall and his three sons to the wall. That was a, that was a little bit like what Rome did when they were crucified people. They would hang them as a sign. This is what happens to those who resist the Philistines. So it's, it's the ultimate symbol of defeat, but it's also the ultimate humiliation of the king. David was the king. Uh, excuse me, Saul was the king. These are the king's sons. This is the ultimate humiliation. And it's the ultimate physical symbol of the triumph of the Philistines over Israel. So it's an, it's an, extraordinary, it's an extraordinary act of, of defiance, of victory, and of humiliation for Israel. Question, just uh, side note, the way they treated the bodies here. This was typical of what you did to the opposing. This was typical of what the Philistines did. What the Philistines did. So it wasn't necessarily special to do it to Saul and his sons. This is just typical behavior. Well, especially uh, uh, typical in terms of the leader of whom they've conquered. Okay. Yeah, not not necessarily right. every single every single Israeli they didn't, or Jewish yeah. person they didn't do this to, but because yeah, this was I mean, it's, it's symbolic. How, how we are so sure. powerful! Look what we've done. And so it's uh, it, it's symbolic again. Uh, it isn't exactly parallel, but it's a little bit of what Rome. Why Rome crucified? They borrowed that from the Persian Empire, but Rome crucified it was a horrible way to die. But it would be a symbol. It would be a symbol to anybody. You live in a town and people are being crucified, which is kind of a, a regular thing to see. They would hang there and, and the body would rot. You would see that body for weeks. Symbol. This is what happens. You defy Rome. Philistines are saying, this is what happens. You defy us. And Beit Shem was a very important city. Uh, uh, one of the things the Philistines, and I'm going to bunny trail. I'm going to illustrate this to you. One of the, the Philistines monopolized the iron trade. They controlled the iron trade in this part of the world. And one of the key centers of that was Beit Shem because of its locations right on the Jordan. It go north, up to Damascus, the, the international road just on the other side of the river. So it's a really important city. Now, we're not done, though, because look what happens. But when the, I'm in verse 11 now. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose all night, took the body of Saul and the body of his sons from the wall of Bashan. They came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, why would now Jabesh Gilead, here's, here's Bashan. Jabesh Gilead is on the east side, the other side of the Jordan, which right up here, at 11 miles or so. Jabesh Gilead was the first city that Saul dealt with. They were under the siege of the Malachites and Midianites and Saul freed them. 
It was one of his first decisive, very positive acts. The people of Jebush and Gilead remembered that. Paul, Saul had freed them. So their loyalty to Saul was demonstrated, and their thankfulness to Saul was demonstrated by what they did is they snuck into Bashan at night and took down Saul and his son's bodies, took them back to Jabesh, burned the bodies, and then took the bones and buried them under a tree. And they organized the fast. And that's the end of the book. The book ends. But it, 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 it's, it's like a closing positive note about Saul. He did do some good. And that, all that material in Jabesh Gilead goes all the way back to chapter 11 in 1 Samuel is where that found. When he rescued Jabesh, they never forgot that. So their loyalty to Saul caused them to rescue his body and that of his sons. Now, if you go way ahead into 2 Samuel, at the end of 2 Samuel, chapter 21, David will bring the bones of Saul and his sons back to Jerusalem and bury them there. So even David makes that connection too. I want to do two things if I can. I want to make just a quick, are there any questions about the details of 31? I just want to make two bunny trail type observations. Okay, nobody online? Okay. Let me make a comment or two about suicide. Suicide is an important ethical issue. In the Bible, there are only a few suicides. There's the suicide of Saul and his armor bearer here we just read. You might remember, but we'll talk about this coming up in the next book when we study 2 Samuel. Ahithophel, who was a, a priest and advisor to Absalom, he will commit suicide. Can you say that name again? It's a big, long name. We'll, we'll come across him in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Then Samson... You remember him, the book of Judges? It, I mean, technically he commits suicide, but he's been blinded by the Philistines. He brings down the building in which he is, he is, he is he's been captured, killing 3,000 Philistines, but he also kills himself. And then the final suicide, of course, is Judas. After Judas betrays Jesus, and you remember all that happens, when Jesus crucified, Judas then goes out and commits suicide. So if you, if you count, there are four suicides recorded in the Bible. Saul and his armor bearer, Ahithophel, Samson, and Judas. Now, suicide is, if you, it's Latin, suicide, it's the killing of self. That's <laughs> what that means. But remember, the Bible never, ever looks favorably upon intentional killing of an image bearer of God. Murder is not approved by the Bible. Thou, you know, in the, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> so that, the Bible doesn't approve of that by, by, by any stretch. So suicide is you are killing yourself, your image bearer. But I think the larger question is, because some traditions in the larger Christian church look at suicide as you commit suicide, there's no hope for you. You are, as far as God is concerned, you're destitute. You're gone. He'll, he'll have nothing to do with you. I don't see that taught in the Bible. I really don't. Um, I don't know how much you 
have ever thought about. Maybe some of your families or you know of individuals or friends or whatever where there has been a suicide. Quite often, suicide is a result of serious mental health issues. Not always, but often it is. Severe depression, mental health issues. If you know anything about bipolar disorder, you're swinging between the manic depressive. That, you can get into a very destitute situation. I think another way to ask this question about suicide, can a believer commit suicide? Listen, you look at some of the giants of church history. Martin Luther struggled intensely with depression. He went, to, he went into long bouts with depression, commenting, I feel like ending my life. John Wesley struggled immensely. He was the founder of that great Wesleyan revival in the 1700s in England, and it spilled over into America. He struggled immensely with suicide. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English preacher of the last century, well, I should say of the 19th century and the early 20th century, his impact. He, start, he he would get so depressed, he, he and his wife would go down to the southern part of France along the Mediterranean for him to heal mentally and emotionally. He, he almost a couple of times considered suicide. That's really hard to imagine. A man who walks so closely with God. Look at Elijah. After his great victory on Mount Carmel, what did he do? He ran all the way down to Mount Horneb. Lord, take my life. I'm done. I can't stand it. He just had a great victory. You and I have to understand that we are not only physical beings, we are mental and emotional beings. And sometimes, even believers, I know of friends over the years that committed suicide. Or I know friends of friends. And they were ministering. So the question is, does God forgive and welcome them into heaven? I can find nothing in the Bible that says, yes, God welcomes them to heaven. So unless you have more to say, that's all, as far as Gump said 22 years ago, that's all I have to say about that. It's an issue, if you've never thought about it, if you've never investigated, it's an issue to think about. Um, I do not see sin Excuse me, I do not see suicide as a sin that God never forgives. Suicide is a very complicated issue, and it's often, not always, but it's often related to mental health issues. And one of the things the church does not do very well is talk about mental health issues. I mean, you you rarely, I've been in prayer meetings and prayer situations all since I came to the Lord and got into ministry. You know, people all pray about my brother has cancer, my sister's heart issues, my you know, having a baby, my hospital issues, surgery issues. Rarely you say, my wife is struggling with bipolar disorder. It's very serious for her. I would ask you to pray that she can achieve stability. When's the last time you heard somebody ask that request? We're ashamed of it. We don't want to talk about it. But it's a real issue. It's a real issue we can't ignore because the, the complexity of who we are, emotional and mental, it, we can't ignore that. 
Now, not everything, but it's it's part of just having that 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 degree of compassion on people. Uh, and that's why it is so important to have, if you're in any kind of ministry or any kind of situation, have at your fingertips people you can call if somebody is really struggling with suicide issues, that they can call and get some help. And there are some really wonderful services. All right? I just wanted to lay that on the table, and I'm going to quickly pick it back up and get rid of it. <laughs> I didn't want to ignore it here. I thought always when I've taught this, somebody always asks about suicide, so I anticipated, so I'm just going to address it. But Ed doesn't want me to leave it, so what do you want? Go ahead, Ed. Um, you said there's nothing in the Bible that saw that Jesus accepts people with penis But is there anything in there that says he doesn't? Or is it just a quiet... I mean, that's a really good way to ask the question. Basically, basically, Ed, the Bible is silent on that. The Bible makes no comment one way or the other. <clears throat> it doesn't give us an ethical evaluation of it. It doesn't uh, outrightly condemn it. It's a very specific act. And it does not say anything about whether or not God accepts a believer who does commit suicide and doesn't come, there's no comment on it all. The Bible is utterly silent on this issue. Let me conclude, and, and I'll introduce 2 Samuel then, but let me conclude four lessons God has taught David. I developed his leadership qualities, but I see four lessons that God has taught David. Lesson number one, if you're going to be a leader, learn what it means to be rejected. You will experience rejection. Learn how to deal with that. Learn to understand what is God teaching me through this rejection. Number two, learn that God is always adequate. Adequate. God is always adequate. Let me put it another way. God is always able to come to your aid. God is always there, always ready to answer. You saw that David inquires of the Lord, and the Lord, when David does not inquire of the Lord, he gets into trouble. He's learned that God is always adequate, always able. He needs that to be the king. Number three. David has learned, and this is obvious, it's like dub, and I'm going to say it nonetheless. David has learned the importance of faith. He must trust God. He must trust him in utter dependence on him. That's the Deuteronomy 17 king. Isn't it Deuteronomy 17? Yeah. And then finally, David has learned the consequences of compromise. When David went down to the Philistines, when he served Achish, the king of Gath, all those ridiculous things he did, he was compromising his faith, compromising his faith. The consequences that were utterly disastrous, catastrophic for him. That's what we studied last week. He's willing to even go into battle against his people, Israel. So David, as we conclude chapter 31, as we end 1 Samuel, the fundamental question after all we've been studying from chapter 17 on, is David ready to be king? 
Yes. And that's what Second Samuel is all about. What was David's reign as king? He will rule as king of Israel for 40 years, seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. He will unify the tribes. He will conquer immense territory. All of the nations around will pay tribute into the treasury of King David. He will make Israel a major power in the Eastern Mediterranean world. But we will ask this question. What was the major character flaw of David? And that we will see unfold in 2 Samuel. Next week, uh, then, we're going to get right into 2 Samuel, if that's all right. Actually, if it isn't all right, that's still what we're going to do. But we'll start 2 Samuel, and we'll just go through. And I'm going to teach and go through 2 Samuel the same way we did with 1 Samuel. It's, it's practically, how can we apply this stuff? What, what is this teaching us as we are living in 2020? Okay? Silence means you understand, so I'm going to pray. All right? Would that be okay? Yes. Father, thank you for our study of 1 Samuel. I trust it's been a blessing to these men. I trust that you have used it. It always is a blessing to me. I'm reminded of some very important truths very important lessons of leadership, and even as as we summarize here with David, that, Lord, you are always able, you're always adequate, and it's always worthwhile to trust you, to follow you, to allow you to be the Lord of our lives, to be the master. So uh, David learned that, and he's going to keep learning that, but that uh, it's a great lesson for us to learn, and I just uh, am thankful so much that the Bible treats this Warts and all. We see a lot of the inadequacies of David, but we also are seeing how you teach him and mold him and shape him and develop him, grow his character, deepen his faith. He's ready to be the king. And that's what chapter one of Second Samuel starts. And we see how David unfolds his leadership. Now he begins to exercise it and the amazing things that he does as he brings glory to you as king of Israel. So we thank you for our time together. Bless these guys here online as well as here in the room. May we go out into this world, this world of darkness. May we represent you as the light of this world that you're calling us to be. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen.